Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Here's my my take on imposter syndrome. Mm. Stop fucking being an imposter. The reason people have imposter syndrome is because they're pretending to know shit that they don't know. everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I am joined by my backward-hatted co-host, Aaron Dignan. Salutations. On today's episode, we're going to talk about you and some of the great questions that you've asked us recently. But before we get into all that, let's ask each other a question. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, what is something that you have purchased lately that you're especially excited about? Okay, so this is a little bit of a, a ringer, but I have had my eye on these Allbirds Adidas Futurecraft shoes for a long time, mm. and they are supposed to be like the lowest carbon shoes you can get other than going barefoot, and they just came in the mail today. So I'm holding them. I'm very excited. I don't know how they're going to feel yet, but they look super cool, and they are very, very light. So exciting. Yeah. What have you done that you're jazzed about? I just got a new kind of CBD gummy that's the special. I've been since I thank you also for so many people who messaged me about having COVID. You guys are very (laughs) sweet. Since having COVID, which I am fully almost over, I'm over most of it, but I'm still having some sleep trouble. And my husband got me these new CBD gummies from fab that have like melatonin and ashwagandha and a bunch of other things in there not just cbd and i tried one last night and i slept properly for the first time since i got covid so i'm very very happy about that the trifecta and ironically coincidentally there are new studies coming out of several universities that cbd and to a certain extent maybe thc kind of stave off the virus a little bit so i hear yeah, you're getting double a, duty. It's a hot rumor in this house. It's Yeah, this is not a show for medical <laughs> advice, but that is something I've read from a major university recently. Do your own research. Okay, so today we're going to dig into the mailbag again. And I guess we should start with a question from Nancy H. She wants to know, how can we use metrics to track improved operating systems? If something like turnover rate is a longer-term outcome, what are the super quick metrics that can tell us if we're moving in the right direction? Or is there a third non-metrics-based way? You know that Nancy's oh, you a know, serious listener. Yeah, she's throwing the third way in. Say. Nancy's got the third way in the mix. Um, yeah, what would you say about steering metrics? Okay, yeah. So we've never done a show on metrics, have we? I think we avoid it. Oh, God, it could be a whole show. Okay, so I'm going to start, even though this is like more your love, your great love than mine. Um, So when I am talking to clients about 
transformation metrics and particularly, you know, how we can understand whether our OS is improving or progressing. One of the first things that we talk about is leading indicators and lagging indicators. So in most traditional systems, first of all, those things aren't parsed. We just have targets. So Aaron will probably talk about why we want not targets. And in doing this kind of work, what I'm interested in is if some of the lagging indicators are things like employee NPS or turnover or sentiment or growth numbers or, you know, cycle time or bugs or whatever we're sort of after, you know, whatever the sort of outcome is, then what I want to be doing short term is really understanding what leading indicators might look like. And what leading indicators might look like are cross-functional interaction, shared airtime in meetings, participating in an operating rhythm, seeing more work being done asynchronously. Like sometimes there are, you know, it's because we're not doing complicated stuff here, it's not a one-for-one that says, if we have X number of triage items in the action meeting spread across 90% of participants, then we are going to have better margin numbers. But if we at least understand, okay, what are we after in the short term that we could look at? And then what do we think we're after in the long term that we can look at? We can start to make sense of how our inputs might impact our outputs. Yes, I would plus one all of that. And Great. it reminds me, Goodhart's Law has been bouncing around at the ready for a long time, but recently it's raised its head again. And as a reminder for the listener, Goodhart's Law is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And the idea being that people are complex systems and they are you know, thoughtful about incentives and reputation and outcomes. And if you say that something is a target, we will immediately start to manipulate, adjust, sandbag, trade off, do whatever it takes to make that thing happen, even at the expense of other things that might matter, like our sanity or the long term outcomes of the firm or things like that. So that's the first thing to say to your point about targets is let's not go there and instead really focus on steering. I, I was actually teaching a class recently. I was a guest a guest lecturer at a, at a university that would not have accepted me as a young person. And I was asked this question and I said, there's, there's the abrupt answer and the helpful answer. The abrupt answer is um, most of the people that I know in this space that are doing remarkably well, that are kind of the paramount, paragon founders and leaders of self-managing systems would just tell you, I don't do things because of the metrics. I do them because they're the right thing to do. Hmm. And and there's a little bit of a principled stance, I would say, among the, the brightest in this space of like, this is the right thing to do. And so I'm just going to do it and lean into it. And if that means that things go up or down or sideways, like so be it. So that's the unhelpful answer for someone that's inside a system that still has other things to weigh against their principles. And then the, the helpful one to your point is is really about the difference between the the leading and the lagging, or even what can you sense now versus what can you sense later. And it's, to me, it's incumbent on the team to answer that for itself. Like if this is successful, how will we know? It might be smiles in the hallway. It might be that productivity goes up. It might be that we do just want to see shipping velocity for a little while, just to prove that we can, Mm -hmm. but not to turn it into a target. So I, to me, it is a little bit of a turn the question back on the team to answer for itself. And as soon as the answers don't feel authentic, keep keep adjusting the scorecard and keep moving closer and closer to like, how will we know? Do we know? And what's next? So yeah, I, I would say plus one to everything you said, I would add those few elements and 
if you can, yeah, focus on the principle a little bit more and don't worry so much about the numbers. They Wait, will, they will take care thing. of themselves. Oh, yeah. Do your other thing. That, that, that made me just think of. Good. That's why we do this as a duo. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's why we don't just talk to ourselves. <laughs> Sweet. One thing that is cool when teams do it is to look at metrics like learning velocity or experiment velocity or courageousness in experimentation. Like my point here is, Nancy, you've obviously listened to this podcast and you've heard us talk about safe to try. If like in the realm of experimentation, if a team is taking a super small, super safe bet as its first experiment, what I'm curious about is six months from now, not are our experiments failing less frequently. I don't give a shit about that. But are our experiments becoming like a little more courageous, a little more radical, a little bit toothier, a little bit bigger? Are we learning a little bit faster because we're like getting better at sensing? Those are really fun to me when there's like a, what is the quality of our experimentation over time? That's a really dope metric that I've seen teams use. Nice. Go Fine. Do that. Okay. I'm going to ask you one. Okay. From Mike Bring S. It, this feels like a like a love advice show with the last initial. <laughs> I like that. Thanks, Zoe, for doing that. Mike S. wants to know, where or how does AI fit into our thinking about roundabouts, people positivity, and complexity consciousness? Is there a place for AI in the future of work landscape or TBD? Mm, I love this question. So... The first thing I would say is that the complicated, complex framework that we talk about on this show and in the book a lot applies directly here in the sense that most of the things that machine learning or augmented intelligence is going to be able to do, help with, play with, augment in the, in the near term, like the next you know, 10, 20 years, are going to be complicated things, things that can be turned into a checklist or can be turned into an algorithm or a formula it's, it's not to say that a machine can't learn to play chess, but it is to say that chess has a finite set of rules and a way to win and lose. And it's just not, you know, it's not like winning at the game of life. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to see the complicated eaten. And to that end, I think it behooves organizations and people to think about the mix of complicated and complex in their lives, in the roles that they hold, in the services and products that they offer, et cetera. And just know that where there is complication, there is likely to be automation in the future or augmentation. So there's some career planning that can be done there. I think there's some business planning and, and you know, org structure planning that can be done there. And I do believe that we want to move human beings as much as we can into work that is driven by creativity and human judgment and not uh, try to sort of cling for dear life to the complicated. Because at the end of the day, most things that are complicated, and especially the things that really are borderline simple, they they don't create a ton of meaning and joy at work with the exception of maybe providing a meditative state. And there are other ways to get that than, you know, peeling tomatoes at a factory. So I think that's that's sort of something that we maybe do want to see happen. However, I do think AI and, and machine learning is going to augment the workforce faster than the workforce changes itself. And that means that there probably will be moments and opportunities for things like UBI to play a role in the future. And again, 
enabling people to go out and do their creative work and to do their work that requires judgment and, and, you know, meaning and connection to community. So the jury's still out on how that's all going to play out, but I suspect that organizations are going to have to provide a little bit more support structure for workers and communities while we navigate this transition that I think is somewhat inevitable and could be potentially good for the human condition, but will likely be misused in a lot of places. Yeah, when I think about specifically the future of work landscape and the place for AI, what it brings up for me, Mike, and other humans is that if if people inside of systems at that point have effectively avoided becoming org designers, time's up. Because the integration of and 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 really the ability to make use of things like AI will require a different level of attention to the how of work. So if you don't have the kind of company that can make use of like, you know, Slack now or Discord now or just tools that are like 10 10 years old now, y'all are in (laughs) trouble. You're in trouble because this is going to take a different level of integration of new ways of working and a different level of job crafting and of teaming and of understanding how to atomize and reallocate various aspects of our organizations and our and our day-to-day roles. And um and I I am fearful for those who are stuck in emailing Microsoft Word documents in terms of how they're going to be able to adapt and evolve to make use of things that could be totally revolutionary to the future of work. <laughs> it's not going to go well. And I'm glad you brought that up because it, it is it is a soapbox of mine and it is a place of like emotional agita when people are talking about how they don't like to learn new tools and they don't mm. like to play with new tools and they don't have headspace for any more tools right now. And I'm thinking like, what if, what if building systems and connecting systems and trying new ways of getting things done with technology is a huge part of the future? Mm. What is that going to look like? So I'm glad you said that. <laughs> what if? What if? Yeah, exactly. What if? That's a gentle way of putting it. What if we answer Aaron B's question? Okay. Uh, Aaron, Aaron made the list for obvious reasons. How do we think about approaching risks and opportunities? What to do with the tension of being obligated to track the probability of a risk occurring and its estimated cost and strategies for dealing with it when it comes to pass? That doesn't feel like a helpful framing, so what's a different move? So I think this is about risk calculation and how do you deal with risk as it manifests in some cases while you while you try new things. Yeah. So I hear two questions in here and one is very ways of working e and one of them is more psychology. So <laughs> the ways of working part of this are manyfold but what comes to mind first is understanding and identifying and clarifying and making explicit what risk thresholds are, what is actually safe to try, and where we are experimenting or trying something risky, doing that in a way that will not do irreparable harm and damage. That's like table stakes that usually is not, in fact, on the table when we start talking about risks and opportunities. So doing some of that work and understanding that there is always risk present and we There are very few scenarios where the total elimination of risk is possible or even should be the goal. It's more about starting to understand the nuance of risk to be like, what 
what would we learn something from and is totally worth it? What is acceptable and we could hang if it happened? And what do we really have to avoid at any cost? And having agreement around that from the people who are involved in making decisions, I think is important. On the more psychological side, like our monkey minds just get into a very like, if then, if then, if then, if then, if then, till you die sort of mentality. (laughs) And one way that I usually coach teams to deal with all of that energy is to do something like scenario planning. So in my former life, I did a lot of scenario planning and and in talking about possible futures and if thens, not as a plan, but as an exercise to like run that pony is really, really helpful. And what we often find is by doing that work, we realize like maybe the then isn't in fact something that we must avoid Or it helps us be like, okay, well, if that is what comes to pass, then what would we do about it? I don't know. What would you add for that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up scenario planning because that was definitely one of the arrows in my quiver. The other thing that I constantly talk about when it comes to risk is doing a better job as an organization of understanding that there are two kinds of risk in a world that is rapidly changing. One is the risk of doing something and the other risk is of doing nothing. And Mm. what organizations are really good at is evaluating the risk of doing something, but they Mm -hmm. barely ever calculate the risk of doing nothing. So if you're a taxi medallion in New York, you were not calculating the risk of Uber happening, but you were worried about, should we do this or should we do that? Right. And maybe even worried about trying an app. So the idea is to make sure that when you're looking at a scenario, you're also looking at the inverse of it and what could happen or what scenarios to Rodney's point could emerge around the absence of action. Because, again, if the world is rapidly changing, if there's a high level of complexity and volatility, chances are something is going to occur that you didn't act on or that you didn't make a move around. And figuring that out is really important. And and honestly, for the ready, as you've seen us start to invest a little bit more time and energy into the Web3 space and, and talking and thinking about DAOs, that is 100% the calculation that's going on there. Mm-hmm. It's like the risk of inaction for us is what? Mm-hmm. Maybe it maybe it all doesn't play out, but what if it does? Mm-hmm. And so to to say like that's a that's a bad spend of resources is to evaluate both sides of that risk. I do believe that that an enormous amount of energy is spent on the pontification because of the psychological things that you were just talking about, Rodney, where our fear gets activated, our uncertainty gets activated, and we start making decisions about what to do as an organization from below the line and from a place that's very agitated, instead of just looking rationally at the equation. And I was looking at this post uh, the other day by a guy named Greg Hutchins, and he had this thought exercise question that he asks folks around black swans and predicting Mm -hmm. volatility. And it was, how much would you be willing to pay to eliminate a 1 in 2,500 chance of immediate death? And he's like, everything you need to know about risk and and your perception of risk and logical, rational, emotional, intuitive responses is kind of hiding in that question. Because when you really start to play it out, it's like, well, how much would you, how much would you really pay? Because that's yeah. a, it's not a great set of odds in terms of a scratch ticket. It's not likely to happen. Uh-huh. But how much CYA behavior are we really going to endure? And so I think to your point about safe to try as an organization having a really good handle on like what is unsurvivable and and where those thresholds is the first step to then be able to say you know what that's just not a very likely thing to happen and and so I'm not going to I'm not going to waste a lot of time on it I'm going to waste a lot of time on the things that are likely to happen 
like the one yeah. in two chance that we die from being irrelevant. Right. Right. Also, I just thought of a, a new phrase. Oh, good. Based on what you said, which is when you when you made the comment about investing in Web3, new take is Romo, which is risk of missing out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it's that. there. Romo. It's present. I want a Romo t-shirt. Okay. I'll get, I'll get you one. I, I won't because I'll never buy you anything that requires design. We should do a Brave New no Work podcast apparel. And it's all just the little <laughs> turns of phrase that come up on the show. People tell me a lot that I say y'all a lot on this podcast. There I get a lot of messages that are like, as you would say, hey, y'all. It should just funny. say Brave New Work, y'all, on your shirt. <laughs> okay. If y'all like what you're hearing, a review would mean ever so much to us. Or please forward our show to somebody who particularly needs it. Pretty please. Uh, Karen R. wants to know, what to do about leaders sending their teams on intellectual scavenger hunts, meaning they want teams to pick up on their ideas through telepathy versus just being direct. Is there a move for leaders where they can both offer up ideas and leave space for a team to have their own or not anchor only to what a leader says? What a fun Yeah, one. the move is to cut that shit out. Um, <laughs> this is such a good question, Karen. And I, to the first part of it, truly do cut that shit out. Where you see a leader that's just like, I want you to guess what I'm thinking because I don't want to tell you because I'm trying to be a coach. That's not what coaching is. It's super frustrating. And I guarantee that the people on the other side of that transaction are like, just tell me what you want. <laughs> so just like, don't do that shit. If Sounds you like know, some relationships actually, I've heard about. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you know, if if y'all listen to our episode on who's driving the bus, this is where no matter what kind of organization you're leading or running or you're the source human or energy for, there are times and places to make an assertion. Now, you're not going to coerce or force people to agree with you or follow you if you have a healthy participatory OS. At the same time, pretending that you don't have a strong opinion or that you don't have an idea you're excited about is depriving an organization of something valuable. So definitely don't make people try to guess what it is. And I would say don't hold back. And if because of the vibe of your culture, that means that people will anchor to that or be like, well, I guess since she said it, that's what we're doing. And I can just stop thinking about this now. I think there are tactical ways to prevent that. So one that comes to mind that I've employed a lot lately is um, doing things anonymously. So something that I really like, I've noticed in, in things like lean or agile coffee formats or just using things like mural boards for various like brainstorming or retro sessions, putting stuff in private mode and turning off the setting where you can see who wrote things and then voting on the idea or what people want to talk about or whatever. It just takes that whole dynamic out of play because truly then the best idea prevails when you don't know whose idea was whose. You know, you can do that in person with sticky notes as long as you don't recognize handwriting. I think there are ways to do that, but more and more in my own practice and my own facilitation, I have been employing anonymity to perpetuate the principle of meritocracy. That's super interesting. So I think I have one addition and one counter 
intuitive take. Yeah. So the addition is I have learned a little trick, and I think I might have picked this up from David Marquette, who's friend of the show, sub commander, which is playing with language a lot, pitching an idea to the group or sharing an idea with your team and then being like, what do you think? Or what do you love about that is going to elicit a response of sounds good, boss. Mm -hmm. But pitching an idea to the group and then being like, let's spend a half an hour talking about what's dumb about this idea or what's mm-hmm. wrong with it or how to tease it apart or how to yank at it is it just opens up a different kind of space for criticism and possibility. And so I've been trying to practice a little bit more of that of like, here's something I'm excited about or interested in or, or feeling like I'm moving towards help me tear it apart a little bit and see what's yeah. there. And if there's nothing there, then it probably is a really good idea. It helps everyone else grapple with it. And it helps you maybe look around corners that you didn't look around. So I like that. I really like the anonymity thing. And there's one, and I'm not, I I don't even know exactly what the parsing here is, but there's one counter to that, which is when you talk about reputation or what um, Ray Dalio at Bridgewater called believability, Mm -hmm. there is something to to the idea that if we have a bunch of ideas on the board and some of them feel a little fringy or unpopular at a voting level, But the person that had that idea has a really good rep in that area Mm. or a really good Mm -hmm. level of believability in that area. I don't want to just discount it because of the wisdom or anti-wisdom of the crowd. Mm -hmm. At some point, it would be nice to know like, oh, that's Allie's idea and her track record in this area is really good. And we're missing the, the benefits of that fringiness. So obviously, if you're the leader, you're less likely to be fringe and not considered in an idea. But if you're looking at a system as a whole... I do think there, it's fun to maybe modulate between these modes and keep flipping the switch to see like over the course of a year with multiple strategy sessions, what comes up if you are anonymous and then running on believability and then anonymous again as you parse things. Yeah, or like it, even intra-session or intra-conversation holding space to be like, does anyone want to advocate cool. for something that didn't get talked about? Right. Right. Because I think sometimes those are really magical moments. And, you know, the group is missing a signal that's a super important signal. And so I I don't know if I've told this story on this show before, but I was facilitating a super cool group a couple of years ago with Sharon. And we were doing actually scenario uh, planning and red teaming work around, you know, build the build the perfect competitor to destroy your business. And a participant who had said very little throughout the day and had just been like sort of quietly pondering and taking notes was like, would you, would you all mind if I just got to the whiteboard for a second? And, and, and truly was like, I think we are missing a Mm. very important signal in our marketplace. And here's how I think we're where like Facebook was at this point. And here's what they missed. And here's what I'm worried about us missing. And it was like, it was pivotal. So to your point, make space for both. Nice. Make space for both. That's another T-shirt. <laughs> We've never said that before, but let's definitely be, put it on a T-shirt. I'm, I'm just going to make apparel for everything you say. I, one has to be the third way. They're all they're all going to be editions of one. Okay. Um, <laughs> and when they're sold out, they're sold out. They're like NFTs. My credit card is ready. So Lauren G wants to know when imposter syndrome impacts you, a colleague, someone you're mentoring, how do you combat it? Plus, are there any organizational design moves that you could use uh, to prevent that imposter syndrome from taking root to begin with? Well, I love imposter syndrome. I've do you? You know, I've danced you just with love it. it. Sure. Okay. I, I I've danced with it in my life here and there. I think 
when you are uh, natural at something, you quickly begin to be skeptical about if you're good at it or not. Mm. And also, I think when you step into environments that are new or fresh or different, you have the same types of feelings. So I have a lot of empathy for this. I think for me, the the two things that I have both tried myself and also do a lot with people that I'm you know, coaching or mentoring is, number one, tr- try to get a better sense of reality. So get some objective data from people around you about your capacity and your potential and what you're bringing to the table because the story you're telling yourself is your story and is fairly subjective. And there are other data points around you, like how, you know, when it comes to my meals at dinner time, how are they really? And, and it's essentially asking for feedback and that might help you calibrate on the scale. And the other thing is when, when these ideas of, of not being good enough get in the way of performance, I often advise people, and I think I mentioned this on the show before, but I often advise people to imagine themselves later in their journey in a place of mastery. So what do you look like at peak pinnacle performance and reputation and really holding that image in your head as you play the game now so that you can just start to borrow from yourself what it looks like to be confident and grounded and and sort of comfortable in your skills and your mastery. So to the extent that you are undervaluing yourself based on the data you got from your feedback collection, playing the game of how would Aaron show up if it was Aaron 10 years from now with all that under his belt and without having to worry about this, that, or the other thing is a really fun thought exercise. Yeah. I've coached a lot of executives who started with imposter syndrome as their reason for hiring me. <laughs> okay. Here's my my take on imposter syndrome. It is totally the dragon that you have to name in order to slay it. Mm. Stop fucking being an imposter. The reason people have imposter syndrome is because they're pretending to know shit that they don't know. So if you can just stop doing that, just be like, you know, imposter syndrome, obviously it can have to do with like insecurity and identity and a lot of very deep things. And in a lot of cases, we feel like imposters when we're learning. Like we feel Mm -hmm. like imposters when we are around people with a higher degree of developed mastery than we have. And just being able to be like, I'm learning and that's it can often slay that dragon. But like the systems around us are so built to um, enforce and reward swagger and like, you know, a total lack of vulnerability and performative egoic nonsense that it's very difficult to say, I'm intimidated in this room because all of you know more than me. I'm really excited to learn about this and I don't know about it. And sometimes that's uncomfortable for me. And if I ask you stupid questions, please be gentle with me because I'm early in my journey. Like that generally takes, lets a lot of the air out of that tire, but we are so unaccustomed to just doing that. Yes, I like that. And I think the only last little bit of jazz that I would add on top of that is there is kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect of competence where you know nothing, and then when you know a little bit, you think you know everything, and then you realize you know nothing, and then you sort of ride up again and plateau. And Jokes. all I can say is that there is, there's often a little imposter syndrome in people before they realize that nobody knows everything. 
and that the emperor doesn't have any clothes and that we're all learning and we're all figuring it out. And yes, there are definitely people that know more than you and more than me and whatever. But but at the end of the day, we hold an idea in our head that like somewhere there's a boardroom full of people that just know everything and pull all the strings. Mm -hmm. And that is just not the case. I haven't found that room yet. Right. And I've been in a lot of boardrooms. Um, and and so I think what you have to recognize is that is that people at every level are learning and are practicing. And it can be hard to tell. It's hard to spot in yourself what you've accumulated over the years. Yeah. And if you have 10 or 20 years of experience, it might still feel to you like this stuff is all fresh and new and I don't know anything when, it, when the reality is, you know, a lot. And and you're you're qualified to be there. So I think give yourself a break. Yeah, great. I love give yourself a break as a T-shirt. There you go. That's another one. Uh, all right. We're going to move on to Sarah Kay now. And Sarah Kay wants to know, what are the biggest screw ups that we've made in OD work? Where have we gone <laughs> wrong before? What contributed to the missteps? And what did we learn from them? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, we could do a whole other. How much time do you have, Sarah Kay? I mean, almost all of my screw ups and I have so many of them. There is like one underlying pattern in all of my screw ups, which is I cared more than they did. I wanted it worse than they did. I made it my thing to do. And I was (laughs) like, I had a heroic or, you know, just a an unwavering commitment to something that nobody else had. And whether that's at the <laughs> ready or that's with clients or that's training my dog, it's like, you cannot care for them. They have to care too. They have to, pe- the, the other party, whether you're in a coaching relationship or an OD relationship or whatever relationship you're in, like it, it really does have to be two ways. And almost all of my mistakes have been related to me being like I can d- I can do enough for everybody for you know everyone, like yeah. nobody else needs to show up I'll just show up for all of us and I'll do all the things and I'll do all the work and I'll be all the energy and I'll just fucking drag us over the finish line of this thing <laughs> and like it d- get spoiler alert it doesn't work out it does not work and and usually it's me you know crawling over the finish line to like drink a bottle of wine and sulk in my failure. So as you, as you move from the hero position on the drama triangle to the <laughs> exactly. victim position. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's, exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. For me, my biggest screw ups are probably trying to do too much too fast. Big moves, big swings, big changes, because I get excited. I get excited about vision and possibility. And I have a comfort with, this stuff that leads me to be like, this is up. These 20 pages of governance documentation are obvious to everyone. So let's just, let's do this in one swoop, right? And so I make a lot of mistakes that way. I would say in the client work, I've definitely made the mistakes you're talking about, but I've also made mistakes of not being willing to do enough foundational work, again, because of my desire for Mm. urgency. So Mm -hmm. like rather than making sure that the base for the chili is really good before I put the six beans in, it's like uh, the stuff's in there. It's kind of hot. It's like putting stuff in the oven before it's pre preheated. Like that's yeah. my move. I'll put the pizza in right when I turn it on. <laughs> like, oh, that's dough. I now literally do dough. that. Still raw inside. 
I make that mistake. So those are those are two things that I'm, you know, actively doing therapy on. And you know, I think in both of our examples people who listen to this show understand the reason those are mistakes and the reason we should both know better is that our principles of participation and of autonomy would signal to us that we should not do the things that we've just described to you. (laughs) And start small. We should start small. We should start with invitation. We should have participation and steering. Like, In both of our cases, and look, like anything else, and, you know, I'm curious to hear from you all what your greatest hits are. All of our greatest strengths are a weakness. Like, Aaron is a brilliant theorist, and also, he can, like, rebuild a house that nobody can live in. I am, like, a brilliant energist, and also, I can, you know, try to inject into a group of zombies who has no interest in coming to life. So like, <laughs> you know, those are great things. And also they can like really screw stuff up. Yeah. Okay. Lauren G. Also, oh, Lauren G. gets two. Thank you, Lauren G. For all of your brilliant questions. Yeah. All right. That's Lauren's theme music. Um, how can we expand and grow skills to support hyper growth environments like scaling startups? And what do we think those skills are in the first place? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's what you're just like, how can we do that? Also, what are those? What is that also? Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, we're right in the thick of this. I think the the reality is that the the skills that we most need are the ones that we most ignore in traditional business education and also in early career development. And those are the skills essentially around agreement making and conflict resolution or conflict transformation. And so I know we've been trying to get ahead of this on the murmur side of the house. And we actually created a an agreement that I I believe I've mentioned before, but I'll mention it again, because I can't help myself around how we deal with commitments and conflict. And so what we've done is built a really small granular curriculum around the 15 commitments of conscious leadership where, uh, surprise, surprise, we'll be having a special guest soon on the show and around nonviolent communication so that groups know how to engage with each other when things get tough. And the subtitle for this agreement is how we keep it 100 even when it's hard. The reason I think that agreements and, and conflict are so critical is because if you're scaling really fast, things and circumstances and relationships are changing faster than they should, faster than any human system would normally do that in a tribal sense. And so you need to be able to navigate that and drive clarity in the midst of that with agreement making. And then where you have friction and static around what's happening or even who the actors are in in the play, having really good skills in, in conflict so that you know how to communicate in a way that reconnects and focuses on authentic connection between two human beings rather than debating to be right, as they would say in the conscious school of thought, like that is, that's the stuff that is worth its weight in gold. And that effectively no startup culture that I've seen at massive scale has really been able to pull off. So to me, it's investing in these completely non blitz scaling, non startup, non Silicon Valley skills that, to a T are not taught in high school, in college, in early career work at all, not even mentioned. So they've got trigonometry. They have no idea how to resolve a conflict. What do you think? What would you add? I mean, the worst 
client experience that I've had in any kind of recent memory was was working with a VC and their portfolio of hyper growth companies. <laughs> it was very short lived. And to your exact point, like what environments like that require, in addition to some of those more human skills, is skills around experimentation. And it is a skill. It's a skill to sense yeah. what is going on inside your org or in the environment or with your customer base or with your employees and yes. to propose some fucking thing to do about it. <laughs> and um, truly in this very short-lived and unpleasant situation, there was a line fed to me that was like, you know, if you think that we have time to just do experiments all day, you don't right. know anything about startups. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, I guess just do whatever <laughs> you're doing then. But to me, it's like the idea, and to your point about things we're not taught, the idea that we can just plan our way out of things or figure our way out of things, especially when stuff is changing really quickly, right, is right. just delusional. And so having a real skill around how to experiment, how yes. to define an experiment, what to try, how to reflect, how to gather data how to steer it, et cetera. Like that is missing in action in too many places. Totally. And it's, and it's applied to the product and it's applied to operations and it's yeah. applied to the culture. And what's funny is I actually think this is one place where the VCs get it more than the businesses do. Because if you really talk to a VC about how they think about investing in a startup, what they'll tell you is it's a bet Mm -hmm. And it's a bet on them achieving a specific goal with that money that is a hypothesis. Mm. It's basically saying like, you have a hypothesis of something that might be true and you're going to prove it or disprove it with this chunk of money. Mm -hmm. And then you have a new hypothesis. Right. And I think one of the things that is happening underneath that is a bunch, to your point, a bunch of micro hypotheses as well. So like yeah. the big macro hypothesis might be that making and keeping and iterating agreements can change work culture and make it not suck. But the micro hypothesis might be this week, pair programming will speed up velocity. Yeah, let's give it a and, shot. And they're all, it's just experiments on experiments on experiments, I yeah. think. And so when you when someone says they don't have time for that, I'm like, that is, <laughs> like if a startup were a, a Mr. Potato Head, it would just be a bunch of experiment pieces that yeah. you're sticking together. That's I all know. it is. I know. It's, it's fascinating. People. People. Thanks, Lauren. That was fun. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to draw things to a close. We have run the list of questions to the ground. And I believe, as a little promo here, we may do our next AMA live as a Twitter space. Uh -uh. So I heard a little bird told me that. So if we do that, we can actually get into this stuff and hopefully dig a little deeper with each person who has a question and find the, you know, the root of the thing. That would be fun. We have really yeah. smart listeners. No kidding. Yeah, I'm hoping to learn something <laughs> when I can actually hear them talk to me. Same. We will wrap it up today with a tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced, as always, by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way that they work. You can get in touch with us with all of your provocative questions by emailing <laughs> podcast at theready.com. As for you, thank you so much for listening to us babble. Now go change something. <laughs>